I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So, we are deep into the federal election campaign. You may have watched the leaders' debates. You've got your own opinions on how those went. You've noted the leagues of lawn signs, the plethora of pamphlets, the abundant ads. But one thing you've probably not given a lot of thought to are the candidates running in ridings. No one actually expects them to win. There's a name for these would-be MPs. Some people call them paper candidates, a stand-in for a party in an area they figure they'll likely lose. Let's just find someone, a name on a ballot. But a fairer term for them is probably the long shots. Because every once in a while, the unexpected happens. And one of them wins. Remember Ruth Ellen Brousseau? She's since had eight years as an MP, and she's running again in this election. But she's well known for her start in politics when she campaigned and won for a riding she had never been to while she was away on a long-planned birthday trip to Vegas. Back in 2011, a shocked Ruth Ellen responded to her win from her hotel room. Of course, I'm really looking forward to coming soon. Over the next few days, um, I'll definitely be in the area. I'm, I'm really excited to come. I've heard it's a beautiful place, and everybody's been so friendly, and I've received so many emails of outreach, and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to going. Or maybe you remember Bernard Trottier, who also ran in that election. He had been the president of the Conservative Riding Association for Etobicoke Lakeshore and was the person tasked with recruiting someone to run against then-liberal leader Michael Ignatieff. But no one wanted to. So people started looking at Bernard. He talked it over with his wife. Uh, her reaction was kind of funny. Uh, it was, sure, go ahead, you can't win anyway. So that was what she told me. <laughs> but if someone's got to do it, go, go ahead. And then, much to the surprise of, well, everyone, he won. Uh, <laughs> so... I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories about long shots. One political, and one not. Coming up. When Desiree Hobbins' cat went missing in Regina, she thought there was no way she would ever find him again. Especially not twice. But I, I knew it looked like Zeppi, and then I'm reading further. It's like we've scanned this microchip, and, like, your information comes up. And then I was like, yeah, but I think you, you have the wrong, like, girl. The truly bizarre story of the cat who came back. Kind of. But first, in this heady final week before a federal election, we're looking to elections past. The Doc Project's own Joan Weber tracked down four people from different parts of the country who ran for different parties. But despite all their differences, they have one major thing in common. They are all part of the Long Shot Club. I think I would have been described as one of the one of the most long shotty of the long shot kind of candidates or, or whatever but 
or, or whatever you want to call it. My name is Kyle Warwick. I uh, ran for the Liberal Party of Canada. I ran in Skeena Bulkley Valley in the 2011 election. I was 22. Yeah, at that time, I would have been in the fourth year at UBC. So I was studying political science. I was involved with the Young Liberals as well as in the student government. I was coming to what I thought would be the end of my undergraduate time at UBC. I forget, I forget the exact person it was, but when whoever it was, someone from the party called me up and said, you know, do you want to do this? I thought they meant like, do you know any people that would be re like candidates that we could, we could get? I didn't think they were asking me to actually do it. I think it's probably fair to say that like it had crossed my mind in the notion that, you know, maybe when I was like 40 something or whatever, I, and you know, I'd been fairly established in whatever field I was working in or, or whatever, that I might, I might do something like that at that point. But certainly um, not, not in 2011, no, not at all. I had no intention of, of running in 2015. Uh, I had never actively taken part in politics uh, outside of covering political campaigns. My name is Yvon Vadenay. At that time, well, uh, I had left broadcasting. Uh, I went in, went back into media consulting. Uh, the Conservative Party had named a candidate for the writing. The person that uh, that they had chosen wasn't taking it very seriously. Uh, he was not really running for the Conservative Party. CBC's Thomas Dagla broke the story. He joins me live with more. What's the latest, Thomas? We've just, uh, a little earlier this morning, Suhanna received an email from the Conservative Party. In fact, one-line email, this individual has resigned as the Conservative Party candidate. Talking here about Chris Lloyd, who up until today was the candidate for the Conservative Party in the riding of Papineau, up against Justin Trudeau, the leader of uh, the Liberal Party. He was sort of uh, made fun uh, of the uh, electoral process. That may be what he was looking at. Did the Conservatives ask him, is your campaign essentially a joke? And to what extent were they aware of this big uh, art project, in large part mocking Canadian politics? Well, I guess they were running out of time. That's one of the reasons. They contacted me and they said, uh, well, would you, would you be interested? And the thing is, I knew that it was a lost cause because when somebody runs in a writing like, like Pepineau against Justin Trudeau, uh, I consider that uh, we're mostly lamppost candidates. So basically that means that, you know, we're there, our electoral signs are up uh, everywhere, but we don't really make that big of a difference. However, I always, I always ask myself, why do people go through this? My name is Petrus Getuba. I was an entrepreneur running an accounting business. Currently, I'm in Kenya visiting. And, um, you know, when they ask me how is Canada, I tell them it's election time. And most of the times I share with my friends or people uh, here that I actually ran for politics in Canada. Canada is home for me. I tell them Canada is home for me. I produce my picture to show them that I, I ran for elections in 2015. Some of them don't believe until they see the pictures themselves. <laughs> 
we were, I was with the other immigrant friends and uh, around dinner, we were having a dinner uh, in a restaurant and we, uh, because of certain prevailing circumstances, we felt that we needed a candidate and I was prevailed upon um, as the person that could and should offer myself to stand and we discussed what party ticket we would uh, we would join and it was agreed the liberal party and i ran in the edmonton st albert riding essentially as immigrants when you come in you are invisible most of the times you do everything you learn the canadian system you acclimatize you get employment you pay your taxes you run a business and yet you in in various uh spaces you are not represented and politics is one of the of the spaces where we don't see people whom we can identify with my name is Matt Bergener. I'm commonly known as Matt Masters. I'm a musician. So I ran as Matt Masters Bergener in the 2015 federal election in the riding of Calgary Heritage for the NDP. I'm uh, from Calgary. My mom was a politician. My mom was a conservative MLA for eight years. And uh, so I've grown up around that community because it's what my, my it's the work my parents did. Um, I was sitting in a pub in Calgary, the Ship and Anchor, when I got a phone call uh, asking if I wanted to consider running against Stephen Harbour. Um, which was like an unexpected phone call. <laughs> and so I thought about it for a second. My wife and I kind of looked at each other, kind of laughed at the ridiculousness of it, you know. But yeah, I was like, okay, I'm ready for that. I see the opportunity here. Well, I mean, obviously the one everyone says is the paper candidate, you know, that kind of notion that it's just a, a throwaway, you know. And... um yeah, I don't. I mean, that doesn't sit super well with me because even even if you're gonna lose, uh, one still contests. Miracles happen, you know. And like, what if the person you're running against has an incredible gaffe? You know, like it's just like you keep running the race. You know, you look at there's some old speed skating video out there of everyone falling down, and the fourth place person gets the gold medal. You know. They were losing in every way until everyone fell down and they won. And the other point of it is campaigns and elections aren't just about winning. That's the other thing. And, and so you can use a campaign to do a variety of things. Winning is obviously the goal. It's not the only goal, though. So I think I was surprised because I was expecting the campaign to involve me, you know, potentially sort of in a, in a role of a sort of relatively senior volunteer type of person you know I think certainly it, it did it did cause my school to be disrupted and I wasn't sure initially whether the um, the school would be sort of supportive or flexible or anything like that I think luckily probably because I was in the political science department and you know I was otherwise a pretty you know sort of responsible and whatnot student my basic thought was that at a minimum, even in the least winnable seats for any given major party, at a minimum, you're looking at, let's conservatively say, a thousand people who would want to vote for for that party. And effectively, they're disenfranchised if they can't do that. So I think I think it does a disservice if you don't have someone there doing what they can, giving their best shot. And I think 
if you have an opportunity to sort of make that process work and provide people a real option to, to vote in the way they want to do, then yeah, you should, I think it's a good idea to do that as well as you can in the admittedly not ideal circumstances that, you know, that, that it arose in. The main reason I, uh, I agreed to, to run for the Conservatives at that point was that I believe that Stephen Harper was uh, the best candidate to be Prime Minister. Also, I was interested in finding out what running in a campaign was like, what it, it, it entailed, the work that was involved. Pepino was a writing I was brought up in, so I know the writing really well. And I would talk to people about the history of the writing and uh, uh, some of the mom-and-pop operations that used to, to be in the writing and had, had since then disappeared. And, uh, and I found people very receptive. In fact, um, I was very surprised because I thought that, you know, people would just say, well, you know, I'm a liberal or I'm, a, I'm NDP and I, I'm, I don't care to talk to anybody from the Conservative Party. And I didn't find that. Going and, and knocking on people's doors and, uh, and, or shaking hands and introducing myself, you know, it's, uh, it's not a natural, natural thing I would do, uh, uh, walk down the street and, and say hi to people. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a friendly person, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, found it very, I, I found it very difficult at first. And I said to myself, well, you know, it's getting out of your comfort zone. From where I stand, there are many reasons why people considered uh, that uh, my candidature was a long shot. First, it's the inexperience, lack of uh, name recognition, lack of affluence in the sense that uh, you need a lot of uh, money for a campaign. I am a black woman. I am a recent immigrant, you know. The, the, there was a large community where I never was aware of where a lot of immigrants live, especially those who came as uh, refugees from Africa in the 90s. And I must say, I didn't like the way they lived. I felt that poverty was very, very pronounced. And uh, in the process of campaigning, I made that my issue. Somebody warned me I shouldn't do that because Canadians don't like being made to feel like they're unfair to a certain demographic group. Uh, but I felt that the people who are given those public housing, those public housing have never been, uh, they, they have minimum maintenance and the people still live in that. We didn't have a, um... The campaign office. We worked out of a garage. We couldn't compete as a on the ground, you know, uh, as I like to say, boots on the ground campaign. We just didn't have that. We didn't have the bodies. We had no volunteers, you know. But um, I think what I recognized was the opportunity, you know, to have a media spotlight because I've worked my life in media. I know what to do with a camera, a microphone. So I started building a team that was based in media that was also based in the arts because that's my that's my community. And we began a media campaign. I think our music community rallied pretty nicely um, around the idea of a musician getting more involved in politics. It was a bit of a well, one-off chance for, for most of us. You know, what, when do you get to campaign against a prime minister with a candidate who's willing to do crazy stuff? You know, 
like it was it was a bit of lightning in a bottle for us you know west of 14th street and south of the reservoir the bylaw says you can still ride a horse in the city so most of the city obviously is not fit for horseback riding <laughs> but um there are parts of the southwest corner of calgary which are also not fit for horseback riding but legally you can totally ride a horse down the street in certain neighborhoods so um one time uh, while harper was on a, a jaunt out with uh with rob ford i believe it was in toronto you know not doing anything for the community i, I hopped on a horse that morning and rode around talking to neighbors you know, and of course, a bunch of TV cameras showed up. What's up? I'm your local NTV candidate. Oh, who's riding in the riding today? Okay. Yeah. Me running as a, uh, a first-time candidate uh, in Calgary Confederation, where I actually lived, would have not not had been a news story. There's there's no there's no news story there. You know, man in cowboy hat runs against prime minister is a news story. Once we had the attention of the media then we could talk about our issues. Much of that campaign period would have been during my final exam uh, time frame. And so it was still uh, a bit of a <laughs> difficulty in terms of being able to get up to the writing as quickly as I ideally would have hoped to do. So the writing is approximately the northwestern quarter of British Columbia. I'd been through there, um, like I'd traveled through there, um, going up to the Yukon, uh, where I'd worked one summer. I think I was realistically aware that the local member of parliament, Nathan Cullen, was broadly quite popular, quite well regarded, um, had been elected several previous times and, and, you know, frankly had a very good understanding of the riding. And when I went to the all candidates meetings, you know, when I was door knocking, when I was putting up signs, virtually everyone was, I mean, most people were not voting for me, frankly, but almost everyone was supportive, said, you know, it's important to, you know, be part of the process. We appreciate you're putting your, your name out there. Some people did take the signs and put them up on their yard. Um, I think substantially the people, at, at a very minimum, the people in each city that I stayed with <laughs> agreed to take my signs. When it came to the debates, it was basically, I had to go out and sort of improvise. I didn't get any, any help and because, because of my, uh, my background in journalism, I, I felt that uh, I, I was okay. I, I could answer those questions as well as the, the other candidates. And um, I tried to, to answer them as honestly as possible, not answers that uh, a number of politicians will, will give where you, you, um, they ask you a question and you give an answer to something else. The regional paper, they asked all of the candidates to, to write a column every week. The thing is, they would come up with, with questions that they weren't really questions that dealt the, the writing economy or or the, the problems that the people in the writing were having. They were much more questions at large. So basically, I would send a question to Ottawa and say, well, you want me to, to write something? And they said, no, no, we'll look after it. So they, they would send me they would send me something that they had written for the column. I'd look at it, make minor changes to it to try to adapt it to the writing. And that, but that was it. 
what I found disillusioning about that is the fact that we were left to ourselves to do a lot of the stuff where it came to meeting uh, the, the locals and doing the debates. Uh, and when when it came to putting something down on paper, uh, they they wanted to make sure that uh, they had a, a uniform approach to what was being said, and they didn't want any deviation from from what was being said. As much as people say Alberta is redneck country. I didn't experience any racism because people would listen, but you could see that they had doubts that you knew you really could be an effective representative to them. Those are the things. It was uncharted waters, as it were. This lady uh, asked me, how long have you been in Canada? I said, I've been here for 20 years. And she looked at me and she said, and so you think you are ready to stand to be elected? I said, sure. All you need to do is listen to me and you would, you, you would judge whether I'm ready or not. And she walked away. It's not racism. I see that as petty prejudice, really, because of ignorance. When you don't apply yourself to understand the other party, so your, your stereotypes come into play and where you pick something and always what you don't know, you are afraid of it. We created a sign campaign where um, uh, a contributor, so for 50 bucks a donation or more to the campaign, you could send us a, you know, a, a sentence and we would take your sentence and we would put it on a campaign sign and plant it next to a Stephen Harper sign and take a photograph for you to share on social media. I don't think we had thousands, but I think we had hundreds and hundreds of stuff like missing and murdered indigenous women are on my radar. Just people spoke about environmental things. Like it, it was, it was all over the map. Of all of our uh, work, one particular ad stood out. It was a, a video ad we made that featured me holding a bunch of signs and dropping them. It kind of looked like Bob Dylan, one of his first music videos. So it was a minute long advertisement that started in black and white and featured myself uh, standing there with a bunch of these Send Harper message signs. And on each of them, it was a, a word bubble. Um, there was a, a message in, in, inside. And as the video progressed, um, I dropped all the signs and it was, it was a pretty negative message. So the message was, there's no way we can win. This city's conservative. I refuse to believe we can make a difference. And it looked like I'd given up. But then suddenly the video stopped and the motion went backwards. And as the sign started coming into my hand and the message read backwards, it spelled out a different story. And as the signs came up into my hands, it read, there's no way I believe the city is so conservative, we can make a difference. You know, and, and so it turned the message from being a negative one to a positive one. And so it got called brilliant by all the newspapers. And, uh, and it got us like a million views uh, between my YouTube page and our uh, Facebook page. Um, and that, that brought us to the national attention. So some people did ask me about my age and my experience. And to me, it was a reasonable question, right? If you're asking about my experience and my ability to, you know, effectively implement the things in the platform that I'm running on saying that I'm going to do, I think that's a reasonable question. I'm sure there were some people who asked it in a way that was more critical or more negative or whatnot. Um, one thing that I didn't think about at the time and 
is a piece that, you know, is likely is that if I was a young woman, if I was racialized, any of these things, could those pieces have come in? It's impossible to say, right? I don't, I don't know. But it would not at all surprise me if I was a 22-year-old woman who went up there that, that some of those questions around experience or competence or professional sort of background or whatever would have been sort of more pronounced. After one of the debates within the riding, the St. Albert Gazette reported, they said the winner is going to be either Michael Cooper, who was new, or the incumbent, who was an independent. And then there was a comment, the surprising candidate is the liberal candidate. She seems to have a good head on my shoulders. And then they said, but she doesn't have a chance, and we hope she doesn't go away. So, um, and I was mentioned as a by the way. I can't talk for the others, but my feeling is that if you're in a writing, a high-profile writing, uh, and when I say high-profile writing, I'm not saying that Justin Trudeau is not high-profile, but when I, what I'm saying is when you're in a, a, a writing where the party really has an opportunity to get somebody elected, they will, first of all, Put more money in, in in the writing. They will they will they will send in uh, a team of people to uh, to help the candidate to make sure that uh, you know he he's um, he's well versed in in uh, in everything that uh, should be said, uh, everything that is politically correct to be said. But in a writing that is basically a lost cause, they sort of feel well, you know, uh, how much how much damage can this guy do? I had $4,000 for my election signs, and uh, I had a couple of my friends who, uh, who put in some money uh, to, to, help, uh, to help me pay for some of the bills, you know, like uh, renting a truck for to, to put them up on lampposts and things like that. No, I did not feel supported by the party. I felt that, uh, I felt that they didn't think I could win. And so didn't really care to invest too much in, in helping me. Um, I understand their position. I, I wasn't going to win. And time and money's invested spent helping me could be better spent elsewhere where maybe they could win, you know. But also, I, it was like, what's the message you're sending, right? I'm a relative stranger to you, and I'm here volunteering my time. I, I had a son born. My boy was born in July. And the election was in October. So I was like on the campaign trail in the first few months of my baby's life. So you want to talk about the commitment I'm offering. Here's the commitment I'm offering. I give you the first few months of my son's life to talk about your message because the importance of childcare is important. And I, I, I'm on that. So the response to be like, yeah, well, you're not going to win. So, uh, you know, we're not going to fund you. No volunteers for you. Good luck. You're on your own. The entire time I was up there, I stayed with families that were supporting the party and had been involved for a long time. And so I never stayed in a hotel or uh, Airbnb or something like that. I wouldn't have expected, you know, a massive influx of, you know, of, you know, $100,000 for, you know, you know, a riding where 
where I was a long shot. So under the expectations that I had and that I think were reasonable, I was quite happy. And good evening to those of you in British Columbia who have joined us at this point as your polls close with the news that the Conservatives will form the next government uh, in Canada still at play minority or majority. And when you look at those numbers, it looks pretty clear that the NDP is heading towards a second place finish. Perhaps that the more the startling NDP. turn in this election was that orange wave, one that NDP leader Jack Layton has surfed straight into Stornoway. I, I was aware that a number of of fairly prominent people in political history in Canada had, you know, kind of gotten into politics often in somewhat unexpected circumstances. Just large, huge. The NDP won 58 seats in Quebec money. Maybe not quite to the degree that my situation would have been or, or you know, a, a number of the students at McGill, for instance, would have been. University students, at least one just 19 years old. And then there's Ruth Ellen Brasso, the Ottawa waitress who apparently ran at least part of her campaign in Quebec from a holiday spot in Las Vegas. It's a, a diverse group. Leighton made no apologies for the inexperience. In an ideal scenario, I, I did hope to, to get the deposit back, which I think would have been a 10% of the vote margin, but that wasn't possible. I will admit to being blinded by the light and thinking there was a glimmer of hope. I can say that with a big smile on my face. I drove down a few roads where I was like, oh my gosh, look at all these signs for me. Wow, we had a, we had a great day of fundraising. Yes, my, my uh, naivety, I totally thought for a moment, maybe we'll win. But then like, I was wrong, <laughs> like dramatically wrong. But that's okay, that's okay. But right now, we're anticipating our first numbers, the first glimpse of the shape of your next government. Keep your it was on terrific. Uh, at at one point, uh, early in the evening, uh, right uh, right off the bat, uh, the polls had just closed, and uh, uh, CBC had uh, had Trudeau trailing me. Uh, well, in Pepino riding, uh, we've got Yvonne uh, Vatnev, the Conservative Party, uh, with two votes, and Justin Trudeau with one vote. So that was uh, <laughs> that was my uh, my claim to fame. So don't jump to any conclusions based on those very early results. <laughs> and after that, I don't think uh, I ever made the airwaves again. We had a meal together and we started to start watching the, the, the tallying of the votes. Initially, we were, it was Beatrice, it was Michael, Beatrice, it was Michael, it was Beatrice, Michael. And so it was very, very strong. But towards the end, you start noticing that the, the victor pulled ahead. And very steadily, I could see that I was, I was not going to beat him. And the campaign manager came to me and said, Beatrice, it is time to call him and congratulate him. And I was like, really? Already? She said, yes, we called him. But he didn't take my call. So it was, uh, besides being a heart-wrenching time, uh, yeah, that was my experience. It wasn't, it wasn't a big night, you know, like, I don't know. I think, I think closer to the moment, we, we, it was more and more clear that I wasn't going to be winning. But it was just a group. You know, there was like a dozen of us hardcores that kind of sat around a table and watched the results come in, you know. And then, hey, look at that, the Liberals won, you know. But it was good to see that a lot of people supported me. And I came in second. And in that riding, no, the liber, no liberal candidate had, had acquired 13,000 plus. 
finally, I ended up with, um, I think, 22 or 2,300 votes. And I was, I was quite proud to have, to have managed to do that, yeah. to get 2,300 people to vote for me. In fact, uh, a mutual friend, uh, at one point, we were, uh, I was at a cocktail, and, uh, and uh, he said, well, I hadn't seen him in, in a while. And he said, oh, uh, I'm in Papineau Riding, and I voted for you. And I looked at him, and I said, oh, you're the one. My big media campaign, which was so successful, got me a solid third place out of four. You know, there's more to politics than just media. There's more to politics than just videos. But it is a TV show. You know, it's it's an interesting one. For me, my my goal was to, you know, certainly, you know, do as well as I could. Uh, certainly come in third, which I'm, you know, narrowly succeeded in doing. Mine was to step out be visible, be a role model, and be a trailblazer. When I see a lot of people throwing in the ring from my community, I know that it, is, it comes from the fact that I stood. I was brave enough to stand. What's interesting, there was one, one gentleman uh, who um, is originally from Egypt, that had called me, and an elderly gentleman, and I went to see him during the campaign and gave him my coordinates. And he still calls me every July 1st and at Christmas time to wish me and my family the best. And he keeps, every time he calls, he says, Are you going to run again? And I keep saying no, and he, but he keeps calling. Makes it worthwhile. You know, one, one that stands out for me was um i think after i'd spoken at i think it was a gurdwara in in prince rupert and and um then i you know i went to the subway and and i was ordering a sandwich and you know the worker there had like this person making the sandwich had a really in-depth and really thoughtful and um complex you know and, and just generally excellent discussion with me about a whole bundle of issues and it's it really stuck out to me i think first of all because in ordinary life, like you sort of go to a subway and you order the sandwich and you kind of know, like you could almost write the whole dialogue of what that interaction looks like before you even set foot in there. And you just sort of assign people certain roles. Okay, that's the sandwich person. That's this, that's that. Being a candidate, you had a sort of a privileged position to talk to people about pretty serious issues in their lives that, you know, ordinarily it's unlikely they would open up to a person that they'd only met briefly, you know, the kind of issues they might talk about with closer friends or family or, or whatnot. One of the things that really bothers me is that immigrants are encouraged to learn the Canadian way. And it's good. It's a good way to do because Canada is great. But the dominant community never gets a chance to learn from us so we have never have an opportunity to impart what we are to them because really we are very we bring a rich everything i know that when i came to edmonton there were no plantains by way of food but now they are everywhere and and, and so it, it can go beyond food i feel that there is when we don't when we don't welcome immigrants into other spaces of Canadian existence, we miss out on what they could bring to enrich the totality. So the danger is that we can grow in silos. 
And that is not desirable because Canada is a, is a good place to be. What are you prepared to do is kind of the question that, you know, everyone gets asked, whether it's in this generation talking about, you know, vaccinations or whether it's our grandparents talking about going to war. What are you prepared to do is the question. Nobody was expecting me to win. Nobody was expecting me to win. So there was no pressure to win because nobody expected me to win. But nobody expected me to do anything either. And I expected me to do something. We didn't, we didn't stop Harper, um, but we helped Canada get rid of him. And that was a part of my goal. I didn't want him to be the Prime Minister of Canada anymore because I didn't like his governance. So what can I do about it? And I think that my work helped. So in that respect, did I win? Yeah, I totally won. I mean, did the guy I vote for get in? Maybe not. The guy I didn't want in is not in. So maybe I didn't lose. Kyle Warwick, Yvonne Badnay, Beatrice Getuba, and Matt Bergener. That doc was produced by Joan Weber. And we're dedicating it to all the so-called long shots who have their names on the ballot this election. You may not win, but you're all winners for keeping democracy alive. Going out to all of you, here is Matt Bergener, a.k.a. Calgary musician Matt Masters, with a little bit of his cover of the classic 1967 Booker T. Jones and William Bell song, Everybody Loves a Winner. Once I had fame Oh, but I was full of pride There were a lot of friends Always by my side But my fame, oh, it died And those friends Everywhere I turned There was a hello and a smile I never thought they'd be gone after a while Masters, everybody loves a winner. All right, sit tight. I'll be right back with a story about the impossible becoming plausible. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. 
Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Desiree Hobbins has always been a cat lover. She even had a picture in her mind of exactly the cat she wanted. I really just had this idea in my brain. I was like, I want an orange and white tabby boy. I wanted to name him Arthur. I just had everything planned out. Plans. Pah. The cat she found, he might have looked like Arthur, but he was not down with her naming plans. Arthur, to me, you know, it sounds, it's just such a cute and, like, reserved kind of royal name, like King Arthur, but um, they didn't have the right energy surrounding the name, as Zeppelin does. (laughs) It was just kind of that rock and roll, like, my way or the highway, like, I'm not going to listen to you kind of thing. I'm going to be who I am. (laughs) And that's just kind of, uh, yeah, that was just Zeppi. And thus, Zeppelin the cat, Zeppi for short, came home with Desiree where she gave him a whole lot of love, and in return, he climbed the stairway to heaven, so to speak. This is a story of a cat who may not have had nine lives, but certainly seems to have had two. Here's Desiree. The moment I saw Zeppelin, he was just, he could, you know, just fit really well in in the palm of your two hands really big orange ears and really like small striped orange body but what I do remember is like him having kind of one eye that was a bit more squinty than the other. I adopted Zeppelin in May of 2014, my first year of university so I think it was just a really important time to have a a new friend and had some energy to put into something else that was other than myself. He's just always been my guy, like, through all my university, um, through different, you know, partners, through um, different things. You you know, it's just like any pet, right? They just, they're they're there. Like, when everything in your world is crashing down, it's like you go home and your pet just meets you with unconditional love. September 14th, 2020, Zeppelin went missing. Me and my boyfriend, we were going on a trip. So we were gone for a week. Our family friend who had been watching the house said that he hadn't seen Zeppelin for a day. I was like, okay, well, that's weird. After the first kind of night, he wasn't back again. All of these what-ifs were passing through my mind. What if he's hurt? What if I can't find him? I just feel absolutely broken and shattered and mad at myself and the fact that he probably was so confused at why is Des not here because I was on a trip and I'm just thinking about all these things that maybe he was feeling as soon as I he wasn't coming home I kind of put it into full gear of search mode I printed off posters. I went around to neighbors. I asked friends. We went on walks at night. I came home every day um, at lunchtime and I walked around the neighborhood. I was constantly on Lost and Found Regina, cat pages, and calling the Humane Society. All I could think about was, where is he? He is just so tough and kind of a little, uh, just a little spitfire. So I was hopeful in that sense. And that's why I couldn't believe, I couldn't accept the fact that he was actually gone. 
I guess when bad things happen, you are like, this can't be real. I'd been checking lost and found Regina cats like at all hours. It was actually at like 11 p.m. that I had seen a post about an orange and white male tabby um, found on a street like way f- far away from my house, but that he was hit and that someone was actually waiting for um, some sort of animal um, place to come and collect the body. So I was like, oh gosh, this could be Zeppi. You know, it fits the description. It's a male. The next day, um, I had to go to work and my friend w- had the day off and she said her and my other friend were going to go and check out the situation to see if that cat was indeed Zeppi because they didn't think I should go alone. And I get this call from my best friend. She says that, yeah, it is indeed Zeppi. We've checked all the markings and that they want me to come and um, just identify and make sure that it is and that they'll be at the Humane Society. I finally get there. I turn into the parking lot and I pull up, I get out and they give me the box and I put the box down and I notice like that it's in one of my friend's shirts, uh, this purple velvet shirt. And I unravel it and I just see this, my big white and orange tabby boy. And I looked at the tattoo in his ear and he had a little bit of blood coming from his nose. Um, And I just like, he was just curled up and he he just looked like he was sleeping, like just really soundly. But like in these horrible moments of your life, you're like, what if I just close my eyes and snap out of this? But it's happening and had to walk into the Humane Society and decide right then and there if what I wanted to do with his body. There was no more looking for him. So I had him cremated, We and once we got the ashes, we went out to Wascana Trails, which is a really nice nature reserve outside the city. Just thought it would be a nice place to like kind of spread his ashes and say some words. Lots of times when I'm going through hard things, my outlet is to write a song and just sing about it, and so I wrote a song called Marmalade Muse. Catching glimpses of a marmalade muse I once knew I was gifted like a a mug with like his face on it and my best friend gave me a picture with his like a a picture of him in a frame and so just kind of had a whole little um, memorial thing for him. There are hungry pets needing love out there. I shouldn't say pets, animals. I am Phyllis Baker, and I enjoy helping those in need. I believe everyone needs a helping hand. I knew something was hungry in my yard. One morning, I went outside and discovered that the little garbage bag I had left at the back door was ripped open. It had, it had snowed a little bit and I could see little kitty prints in the snow. And then I realized, oh, it's a kitten or some little cat. It was starting to get cold out. So right away, I contacted Regina Cat Rescue and they gave me the sleep, the Starfoam Sleeping House. The cat house is just one square styrofoam box with a window. This cat house is so comfortable. Any cat that went into that house 
was warm. It had a heated water dish so that the water wouldn't freeze in the winter. It had a bowl of crunchy cat food and then a big dish of fresh cooked chicken and turkey. We wanted to know exactly what was going on in that house because when we when I'd come out the next morning to go check the feeding bowls, you know, they would be half empty. So we got curious and we decided to put this Arlo security camera, which would also pick up when the cat jumped into the sleeping area of the house. I believe it was January 13th when Buddy first showed up on the camera. And when I seen the video, I'm like, well, who's this now? I was quite surprised. I, I thought, who's this skinny looking cat? He, he just looked so miserable. He was so unhappy. He was very scared. And finally, after like three or four weeks, he came right up to me and rubbed up against my legs. He had like a bump on the top of his head. His, he was so bony. Into May, he fattened up. He, his, he gained his weight back and that lump on his head seemed to be better. I did notice, though, when I first started seeing him that he was missing a tooth. And when I felt that lump on the head, I thought he'd gotten into something, some kind of trouble. After him living in my yard for a few months, I, I realized, you know, that he was someone's pet. And the Humane Society website allowed me to make a poster and print a poster. So then I hung it up around the neighborhood. We put it on Facebook with, you know, a good description of him. And um, yeah, just no one came forward. I could see he had this tattoo in his ear. And so when I talked to the Regina Humane Society, they said that if he's got the tattoo in his ear, he'll have a chip. So Cat Rescue, they loaned me a, a chip reader, a scanner, so that I could scan Buddy's body to find his chip. And I could not find his chip. And one of the ladies came from Cat Rescue and she couldn't find the chip on him either. You know, geez, he has no chip. Now what? You know, because the tattoo just says RHS. It's not like it's a number where he could be traced, you know. Over time, like as the months went by, I realized there's there's no owner looking for Buddy. Like, Buddy could have came from anywhere. Cat Rescue finally, you know, agreed to come and pick pick Buddy up, um, you know, near the end of May. They found Buddy a foster home. You know, on one hand, it was a big relief, but it was very sad for me, you know, to actually hand Buddy over to a stranger. Then they drove away and she promised to keep in contact with me. And yeah, it was a couple days later, she phoned me to say, hey, we found Buddy's owner. So I'm working outside. It's a hot um, day in May 2021. And I check my phone to see a notification from Regina Cat Rescue. And I open this message up and I see a picture of Zeppelin. And I read the message and it's like, hi, Desiree, we think we have your friend here. And reading further, it's like, we've scanned this microchip and like your information comes up and like, please give me a call. So I gave her a call and then I was like, yeah, but I think you, you have the wrong like girl. Um, I, 
we lost Zeppi in September. I cremated him. Like this whole thing explained everything to her. And she was like, oh, well, Desiree, like microchips don't lie. Like this is this is your cat. Like this is all your information that came up. So if you want to come and check him, like come and get him, this is he's here. Just absolutely dis- disbelief, just complete shock. Um, just like, this can't be real. I've mourned Zeppi. I've already been through all this. Like, we cremated him. I was just on a mission. I was like, I'm going to see if this is my, my Zeppi. And I walk in, and there he was. I was just like, hi. And it was him, and I just couldn't believe it. And I just couldn't stop looking at him. And he seemed just a bit different to me and like fair enough he'd been living outside for so long and like he just did look a bit more rough around the edges and i just couldn't i was just in disbelief that that he was alive I would just like to say to Phyllis and Marcel that thank you so much for caring and having such big hearts for the cats in the community that go missing, like to have a shelter and a safe place for them to stay during the winter months. That's like so huge. I feel so happy knowing Desiree has a second chance with her Zeppelin. It's just the greatest feeling in the world for this cat to actually have an owner that lived actually not too far from me. They are so lucky. Desiree Hobbins and Phyllis Baker. That doc was produced by Tanera McLean with reporting from CBC Saskatchewan's Mahunur Mubarak. Off the top of that story, you heard a little bit of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Aside from his missing tooth, Zeppelin is doing really well these days. He is not allowed out in the yard by himself anymore, but Desiree says he's come to terms with it. Now, you may be wondering, whose cat did Desiree cremate? We are all wondering the same thing. And, well, determined journalist that she is, Tanara McLean, who made that piece, she wanted to find out, and she has been investigating. Tanara has posted on the Regina Cats Lost and Found Facebook page, but so far, no takers. So, if you or someone in your circle is missing a big ginger cat, Desiree wants you to know that the ginger mystery cat may not have been Zeppelin, but he was mourned, and his final resting place is a really very pretty spot. Rest in kitty peace, mystery cat. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, Sherry O'KK, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.